The church in Galatia was born out of a beautiful movement of the Holy Spirit. The powerful and potent preaching of the good news of Jesus birthed a movement among the Galatians. But shortly after the Apostle Paul left, the church was hit with a crisis. The church had been infiltrated by a poisonous and convincing idea. Faith in Jesus was not enough. Instead of resting upon the completed work of Jesus, the Galatians began to believe they needed to affiliate with the right tribe of Christians, which meant they had to add to the equation. It was Jesus plus fulfilling the law, Jesus plus religious affiliation, Jesus plus sacred traditions. And if we're not careful, we too can heretically add to the gospel in the name of our own theological tribalism. But adding to the gospel only subtracts from it being the good news. There is only one equation we need. Jesus plus nothing equals everything. Oh, all right, go ahead and grab your Bibles, turn to Galatians chapter 2. A little context if you haven't been joining us, and a little bit of a reminder if you have been joining us and have already forgotten. So uh, we're working our way through this idea of, of Paul has written this letter to the church of Galatia, a church he planted, a church he loved, and this church started to add to the gospel. They said it had to be, yes, yeah, yeah, faith in Jesus, but also you need to eat the right things. You need to have, be a part of the right religious tribes. You, you need to do all these outside things. And what we learned is there is only one true gospel. It is faith in Christ alone. And so last week, we kind of expanded on this idea that, that no, we have to keep coming back to, we have to keep coming back to the gospel because God is writing a story. And so we actually have to protect this story that God is writing by saying, no, 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 we're not gonna let it be hijacked by people trying to add to. We're gonna keep coming back to the way of Jesus. And so this week, uh, we're gonna continue on. The, this, the, the thought continues on. And so we're gonna pick up in chapter two, verse 11. I'm gonna read 11 through 14. We read it last week, but it sets the context what Paul is gonna share, okay? Because he's had a, he had a conversation, a situation with Peter, who he calls Cephas, where Peter himself was being led astray. It says, but when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. Why did he stand condemned? What was Peter doing? For before certain men came from James, okay, this is the circumcision group. This is the Judaizers that show up and start adding to the gospel. He was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and he separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. So there was this group of new converts that they were spending time with and they were associating with and they were eating with. But then when the hyper-religious show up, they convinced them, no, you shouldn't even eat with those people. And, and so Peter and even some of the other disciples, they're led astray. And, and Paul, when his best friend, one of his closest ministry partners is Barnabas. And he's like, even Barnabas is led astray. And so again, this is pointing to why Paul is so protective in this book. But when I saw their conduct was not 
in step with the truth of the gospel. So it, we're just talking about eating. We're talking about who you're associating with. You're talking about behavior. But he says, by their behavior, they're declaring we no longer are following the gospel. We're no longer looking at this idea of justified through faith. I said to Cephas before them all, if you, though a Jew, live like a gentle and not like, Gentile, not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? How can you keep adding these things on? And this is, this is the argument that we're gonna look at today and what we're gonna start to um, break down. Verse 15, we ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law, no one will be justified. Paul is arguing that none of us are any better than any of us. We are not better than one another by our behavior, by, by our marks, by, by the tribes we associate with. All of us, we are, the, we are together, we have what we have because we are justified by Jesus, not our rightness. That is it. It has to be justification by faith alone. Okay, so, and you look at this passage here, 15 and 16. Uh, look at how often he uses the word justified. This is the theme that he's gonna build around. Even in the coming chapters, we're gonna see justified. So I wanna give you today because um, if you're around church, um, you hear this word, but we don't always know what it means. If you're new to church, you're like, I, it's not really something that I would hear or speak about, you know, unless it's like a Justin Timberlake album. Like that's the only common, you know, cultural time we use this word, okay? Uh, and so I wanna explain a doctrine of justification to you and, and walk through a theology of justification so we can understand what Paul is communicating. Okay, to be justified, it actually means to be declared right. And, and these two words are, are very closely associated, okay? So I think sometimes it's helpful for us to look at the original Greek language because the New Testament, these letters, they were written in Greek. And so you see the word justified, and, and it's this, this word daikao, okay? But then righteous, it, it begins with this same word, diokasune, okay? So justified means to be declared righteous, to put someone in proper relationship with one another. Uh, righteous means the state of being in proper relationship with God. So they sound so different to us. We're like justified, righteous, justified, righteous. But when you look at the original language, it's, it's how you can see how tied they are in together. And, and, and this is helpful because I want to explain to you what justification means. Okay, first of all, justification means you are now in right relationship with God. That's what, that's what the word righteous is. Righteous, we hear righteous, um, it can mean all kinds of things in our mind. We think about like, you know, a fancy priest in robes and you're like, oh, the dressed in righteousness, right? Or it can mean all the way to like the turtle crush and finding Nemo, righteous, right? You know, like, like, what, like what does it actually mean? It's a relational term. Righteous is a relational term. We think of it in terms of holiness, or we think of somebody is righteous, uh, they, they live the right behavior. No, no, no. Righteous means they are, in the, they are holding up their end of the relationship. A husband, when he is lovingly protecting and providing for his family, he is acting righteously. A friend who stands by you through thick and thin, they are being righteous. A mom who cares for her children, 
holds him in close, tucks him into bed. That is a righteous act. It's a relational term. A child who obeys their parents says, yes, mother, yes, father, I love my siblings. That's a miracle. But if they did it, they would be, they would be acting righteously, okay? So I want you, when you hear righteous, I want you to think relationship. To be righteous means you're holding up your end of the relationship. And so when God says we're justified, he's saying you are now in right relationship with God. I'm declaring that things are right between you and God. And God, God is righteous. And what that means is God always holds up his end. God is always faithful to his promises. God, God holds up his end of the relationship no matter what. He, he is a righteous God. And so Jesus shows up, and he shows up as a human being, as a man, and then he lives a perfectly righteous life. He worships perfectly. He loves perfectly. He honors God perfectly. He submits to the Father perfectly. And this is why it's so foundational to the gospel, that if we repent of our sins, our unrighteousness, the way we've betrayed God and turned against us and put and turned against him and put our faith in Jesus, then we can actually become justified. This is what Paul is saying. We can become declared righteous because what is true of him, what is true of Jesus becomes true of us. It says we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith. Tim Keller, pastor, theologian in New York, he puts it like this. When God credits righteousness, he is conferring a legal status on someone. He treats them as actually righteous and free from condemnation. Even though they are still actually unrighteous in their heart and behavior, they are justified. That's why justification is so incredible. Um, you sinned this week. You are unrighteous towards God. Yet, if your faith is in Jesus, you have his blood covering your sin, you can, you're still in right relationship. Jesus held up that end for you. This is why faith is so critical, which leads to this next idea. Justified means you are forgiven, your guilt is washed away. Uh, you, we all, we've sinned against God. And when we think about the term sin, we often think of it as uh, bad things. We think of sin as uh, relational betrayals. Uh, that's how we need to think of it. Not just, oh, I did a bad thing, but there's actually, it's a relational betrayal. We worship and adore things other than God. He calls that idolatry. That's, that's a relational betrayal. We profane his name. That's a relational betrayal. We destroy rather than care for his good creation. That's a relational betrayal. Humans, we are not righteous in our relationship with God. Yet through Jesus, when we put our faith in him, he takes our sin and puts it to death on the cross. It says that Jesus became sin so that we might become the righteousness of God. It's this, it's this great exchange. It's a, it's a changing of position, a change, exchange of clothes. And this is what justified means. J.I. Packer, he puts it like this. He says, to justify in the Bible means to declare of a man on trial that he is not liable to any penalty, but is entitled to all the privileges due to those who have kept the law. Justifying is the act of, judge, of, of a judge pronouncing the opposite sentence to condemnation, that of acquittal. 
and legal immunity. So when Jesus, when Paul says, no, we are justified by faith in Jesus, he's saying, no, the only way to get rid of our guilt is not by trying to be more good, not by trying to be, fulfill the law even better. No, the only way to get rid of our guilt is to allow it to be put on Jesus. And when, when it's put on Jesus, it says that Jesus takes it to the cross, he becomes sin, and he puts sin to death. This is why the cross is so crucial to understanding the gospel, because it's our brokenness, this relational betrayal of, of what we've gone through. Third, uh, justified means when God looks at you, he sees a son, not a sinner. Man, this is why the gospel is such good news. There's this great exchange that takes place at the cross. Not only does Jesus take our sin, but he gives us his righteousness. God made him who knew no sin to be sin so that we might become the righteousness of God. See, when we trust in Jesus, what's true of him is true of you. God doesn't look at you and see all your sin and your brokenness if you are in Christ. You know what he sees? He sees a son that he dearly loves. He sees a child that has actually, he sees Jesus's perfect life and perfect righteousness and that's what allows us to be. This is why the doctrine of justification is so beautiful. Do you see why Paul is like heated? Because like what they're doing is they're showing up and they're like, no, 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 not just faith. You got to do this and you got to do this. You got to do this. You got to do this. You got to do that. And Paul's like, man, that is a rejection of the gospel. You are missing it. And in fact, you're undermining God by adding all these different things. John Calvin, he puts it like this. It is entirely by the intervention of Christ's righteousness that we obtain justification before God. This is equivalent to saying that man is not just in, him, not just in himself, but that the righteousness of Christ is communicated to him by imputation, meaning put on you, imputed, while he is strictly deserving of punishment. This is the great exchange. This is the beauty. When God looks at you, he sees a son, not a sinner. My... Uh, I first started to understand this whole concept um, when I was probably about nine, 10 years old. And uh, I grew up, uh, I've shared stories about this before, but I grew up what I would call a mall rat. And what I mean by that is uh, malls used to be this, these places where people went um, and all the stores, right? And, and people could shop and you could, there was an exchange of goods, okay? Not just like an empty, vacant, like future knockdown parking lot, okay? And so uh, my parents, they had like Orange Julius's and Dairy Queens and they're always in malls. And so um, on, our, on weekends and, you know, um, when, when I didn't have school, uh, my parents would take me and my siblings and we would go to the mall with them. And it was Oftentimes before the mall was even open and we'd kind of run around the mall and play in the water fountain and all these different things. And I had this one, uh, this one place that I loved more than any place in the mall. It was glorious. It was called Pocket Change. It was an arcade. Now this is like, before video games were like, we're gonna create an alternate identity and you're gonna be, your soul's gonna be, it was just like, you're just like fighting an opponent and that was it. Like, it was just like arcade games. And so um, my parents uh, up in their room, they, had the, they called it the pig. And it was this giant, in my mind, it was like the size of this building, but it was like this giant glass jar that they would put all their change in it. And they said, whenever, uh, whenever it gets filled, um, we would take a trip to Hawaii. Well, we never took a trip to Hawaii because it never got filled, which is a good strategy, okay? Um, but part of the reason it never got filled is because every once in a while, when we go to the mall, I'd be like, hey, can I go to the pig? And they knew what that meant. They, I want to go grab quarters so I can go play video games at 
pocket change. And so they would say, yeah. So I, you know, kind of became this routine. Well, after a while, I just like kind of stopped asking. You know, I would just, they'd be like, go to the mall. And like, you know, so I'd run in their room and, you know, and I'd grab, grab, you know, sift through all the, you know, worthless coins, you know, anything other than a quarter, you know. And, uh, you know, I'd put them in my, in my pocket and I'd go, well, one day I remember uh, they were gone and I was like, this is stupid. Um, I need a better strategy because I never get enough quarters. Um, and so while they were gone, I, I emptied the pig, um, laid it all out separated all the quarters from all the rest of the worthless coins, put all the worthless coins back in the pig, and then I hid the quarters under their bed. So now when they're like, we're going to the mall, I could run in their room, baseball slide into second base, reach under the bed, get a full handful of just pure goodness. You know what I'm talking about? Put it in my, put it in my pocket and then go and you know, let my brain melt for hours playing video games, okay? One day, my dad... Uh, was downstairs, and he goes, hey, Jason, come here, and uh, I run down the stairs, and, and, and as I walk up to him, I immediately see it. He's sitting at the table with this pile of quarters in front of him, and hesitantly, I just sit down, and he just looks at me. He goes, where did I find these? And I'm like, you found them under your bed, and he goes, I did. He's like, why are they under my bed? And I told him why. And he looked at me and he's like, why would you steal from me? (laughs) I'm your dad. I love you. And it was that moment that I first understood sin as a relational betrayal. I just thought like it's quarters, it's no big deal. But I loved my dad. I had an amazing relationship with my dad. My, My dad was so generous with me. And I remember realizing that moment, like sin is not just bad behavior. Sin is a a relational betrayal. And we work through it and we talk through it and we get done and I'll never forget how he ends it. He goes, now look at me. I'm like, okay. He goes, we're going to the mall. I'm like, okay. He goes, ask me for quarters. And I'm like, this is a trick. (laughs) (laughs) He goes, ask me for quarters. And I'm like, can I have some quarters? And he takes a pile and he slides them across the table to me. He goes, get in the car, let's go. Not only did I become aware that sin is a relational betrayal, you know what else I became aware of? Sonship is much more powerful than sinship. He still looked at me as his son. This is what Paul is saying. Look, we betray God. we've wounded him, we've hurt him. It's a relational betrayal. But when he looks at you, he sees a son, not a sinner. This is why we have to understand that we are justified by Jesus, not our rightness. It says, people are not justified by works, but rather through faith in Jesus. It's not right thinking. It's not right behavior. It's not right tribe, just the right savior. This is the gospel that we would put it in Jesus. This is the doctrine of justification by grace through faith alone. And he continues on. He says, he's he's continuing his argument and he's gonna kind of bring up, hey, these are the kind of things they're saying about you, just so you know, okay? But if in our endeavor to be justified in Christ, we too were found to be sinners, is Christ then a servant of sin? Certainly not. 
For if I rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor. For through the law, I died to the law so that I might live to God. What's happening here is he's pointing out what the opposite of justification by faith alone is. You know what it is? It's self-righteousness. Where we say, okay, no, but I'm gonna be self-righteous. I'm gonna do the right things. What's happening here is this circumcision group, they're making an argument against justification alone by Jesus. And how they're doing it is they're saying, but look at your church, there's still sin. It'd be like somebody walking in here and and spending a few months and being like, hey, um, I need you to hear this. Um, your Your church is not a true church. And I'm like, why do you say that? They're like, because... Um, it's filled with sinful people. <laughs> Bye, bro, welcome to the club, right? <laughs> this is why Paul says he's the chief of sinners. They're looking, this group shows up and they're, they're looking at how, they're saying, look how righteous we are. Look how much better we are. God is happy with us, we are set apart. This is what self-righteousness is, okay? It says, we obey the law to earn something from God. There's a different motivation. It's an outward behavior, yes, but it's so that you can earn God's affection. You can earn his approval. And it's, it's so focused on others and how they fall short. We obey the law to make ourselves righteous. It's the kind of, you ever heard this phrase, okay? People go around and say, God helps those who help themselves. That's the root of that. That's self-righteousness. Okay, whenever you hear this, for, it's like, no, 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 you just gotta do more and then God would come along, okay? Whenever you hear this phrase, I want you to think Drake. You know what I'm saying? You know who Drake is? Yeah, yep. Drake meme all day long, okay? No, 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 I, I reject that. Instead, I want you to think Martin Luther, okay? God helps those who cannot help themselves. Like, yes, yes, that, that is sound, Drake just approving sound doctrine right there, okay? That, no, this is what we have to be built upon. We do what we think we need to do in order to be righteous, this, this is our behavior. This is what we do, and this is what's happening with the Galatians. And so here's what they focus on in self-righteousness. They, they, we have to look right on the outside. Okay, this is why they're making arguments about circumcision and food loss. You have to associate with the right tribe. This is why Peter is disassociating with the wrong people. And you have to hold the right way of thinking, unlike Paul's converts who still sin. But here's the problem. Every one of these focuses on yourself. Every one of these, it's, the, it's almost the opposite. It's a rejection of justification by faith. No, it's justification by my own self-righteousness. I declare myself righteous. And so let's just work through these and to understand how self-righteousness is the opposite. Self-righteous, they live to please the law instead of living to please God. And Paul is making this argument. How can he now, if he died to the law, he's actually now able to live to God? And the implication was that before, the way he was living by following the law, he's trying to earn God's affection. He's obeying for a reward. Think of it like this, okay? So every day, my kids come home from school and they have after school chores, okay? They just have a handful of things they need to do. They need to put the backpack, their backpack on the hook. They need to take their shoes off and put it in the bin. They need to take their lunchbox and empty out the old food, you know, and put put their lunchbox in the sink so it can be, you know, cleaned and prepared and, you know, and then they need to get their homework on the counter. Now, why do they have these rules? Why why do they have after school chores? Well, it's, it's for their good. Like, we want them to be set up for the next day. It's a way to honor their parents as we, you know, as their mother gets them ready for the next day in the morning. Like, all these kind of things. It's a system. And, and they actually honor us when they obey. But here's what happens. 
um, when they come home. It is this absolute just chaos of like love and updates, okay? Here's what I mean. I, I love when I'm at home, uh, when, when, when they get home, because they walk in and their jackets are just coming off and their backpack is kind of on the table and they're kind of holding on to me, giving me a hug and they're, you know, picking up the cats and they're halfway doing their chores and putting things different places. They always have one shoe off already. I don't know why, but it, it's just like chaos. They're like hugging me. You know, Dax is telling me about PE that day and you won't believe what happened when we played two square and it was so fun. And Nova's like, guess who I sat next to lunch? And they're just, it's just this like mess of updates, okay? And it is my favorite part of the day. Like, like I love it so much. Now, imagine we had a third kid. Um, let's call him Ricky, okay? Self-righteous Ricky, okay? <clears throat> and every day, uh, Ricky comes home and he follows the rules to a T. He does his chores flawlessly. Backpack goes on hook, lunchbox cleaned out, shoes in bin, homework on the table. But Ricky has no care to embrace me or tell me about his day. Ricky just sits there, in fact, judging Dax and Nova. He's just like, look at them. Look, at, look how poorly they fulfill their after school duties. Look at me. Look how amazing I am and look how ter- they're, they're spending all their time telling you about their day when they're supposed to be following the rules. They're supposed to be doing this. They're supposed to be doing that. They're, are they, can you even call them children? Like, should they even have your last name? They are illegitimate children, okay? I don't, I don't even think they should bear the name because look at this behavior. They're so focused on you and their happiness and their joy and their updates that they, they, they fall short over and over of the rules, how would I feel about self-righteous Ricky? He would not be my favorite kid. I'll tell you right that, right now. He, he'd be third, maybe behind the cats even, okay? Because cats are like furniture. You like forget you have them, right? Get a new cat, you're like, like, hey, we got a lamp. We got a cat, you know, whatever, right? Ricky would be below that. Yet how often we show up in God's family and rather than saying, man, I'm justified by faith in Christ alone. And you know what that results in? I love my father and I love my family because we're all justified together. We show up and we point at other people and how they're falling short in their thinking or their behavior or who they associate with. This is self-righteousness and this is why self-righteousness is disgusting. Charles Spurgeon says the greatest enemy to human souls is a self-righteous spirit which makes men look to themselves for salvation. This is why when they ask Jesus, what's the most important rule we follow? Jesus says, actually the whole law, all of it, it's all summed up in this. Love God and love people. You do these things, you're gonna fulfill the law. Second, the self-righteous live to associate with the right tribe instead of loving people like Jesus. Uh, We think if I can just associate with these types of people, spend time with them, be seen carrying their books, follow them on social media, then I'm righteous. And Peter, Peter, he gets caught up in this. And, And here's what we have to understand. This is not the way of Jesus. Jesus, he was bashed over and over by the people he spent time with, Right? 
And yet we find ourselves like, oh man, I hope people don't see me around this. I hope, I hope people from my church, or I hope others don't see me, you know, uh, sitting and talking and, and, and meeting with and spending time with. But over and over, Jesus, he's associated, he's constantly being associated with, the, with sinful people. He called him friend of sinners. Albert Tate, pastor in California, he put it like this. He says, Jesus never had a problem embracing those he had disagreed with, but his embrace was not an endorsement. Don't fall for the trick of the enemy. We can disagree and still walk closely in community with each other. Listen to me. Just keep looking at Jesus and live the way he did. And if somebody accuses you of being a friend of a sinner, say thank you. <laughs> because they're giving you the same title that your savior had. They're associating you with him. Listen, I, I, I know a lot of you guys um, are new to church. And um, here's what I want you to hear. Um, as you fall more and more in love with Jesus, he's gonna radically transform you. Uh, you are gonna be justified when you put your faith in him. You're gonna make this declaration. And at some point, you might start to feel this pressure of like, man, I have to disassociate with certain people. Now, I'm not saying there, might, there won't be times where you have to have boundaries. There will be times where you have to have boundaries. You can't live your old lifestyle. You need to live a new lifestyle. But here's what I've seen over and over and over countless times. Um, the greatest evangelists in our church are new converts. Because you show up and God starts working in your life and you have all these like sinful friends all the church people have righteous friends, but you have sinful friends, okay? <laughs> and you're like, man, come and meet Jesus. He's what we need. He's the hope and he's the salvation that we need. Don't get so caught up in this idea of like, oh, I gotta make sure I'm seeing around the right people and not seeing around the wrong people, man. Love people like Jesus did. The self-righteous care about who they're associated with. Jesus cares about people. Third, the self-righteous, they, they care about outward appearances instead of inward transformation, okay? Outward appearances, what do people think of me? What do people see? Uh, again, what, what are they arguing about here in Galatians? No, you have to do this outward act. You gotta be, think about the food that you're eating, all, who you're associating with, it's all outward. But, but gospel disciples, we want in, inward transformation. I saw this picture of a baseball player doing an interview the other day. And, uh, and then I saw the whole picture. <clears throat> you know what that bucket's called right there? That bucket is called self-righteousness. All he cares about is what people see, okay? Now, I usually wouldn't rip on him, but he's a dodger, so it's fine. <laughs> what, did, what did Jesus say? What did he say to the Pharisees? He says, what do you scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and uncleanliness. So you also outwardly appear righteous to others, but within you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. Paul wasn't the only one who battled this. Jesus did too. And, and we will as well. It'll constantly be here. In modern day, uh, this could even be labeled as things like virtue signaling. 
I voted this way, look how I donated, look at what flag I put in my username, look at the hashtag in my bio. You're not actually doing anything to serve and love people, you're just putting up these outward symbols that represent the approval of the world around you or the culture around you. And it's caring about your outward appearance. Man, who, who are we trying to impress? Do we care about what other people think? Or are we trying to honor God and what he's brought to us? Fourth, the self-righteous, they ignore their own sins and highlight others. Man, this is huge. How quickly we show up and we, how good we are at pointing out other people's sins. John Flavel says, it's easier to cry against 1,000 sins of others than to kill one of your own. Man, and I just think that is so spot on. <laughs> Comedian George Carlin Carlin said this, he says, uh, have you ever noticed that anybody driving slower than you is an idiot and anyone going faster is a maniac? <laughs> Theologian George Carlin. <laughs> if we spend our time pointing out the sins of others while ignoring ours, we are being self-righteous. If we spend our time dwelling on the goodness and the grace of Jesus, how overwhelming his love is for us, we're, we're not gonna go around just pointing out all the areas that other people fall short. We're gonna be pointing out what a great savior we have. Uh, fifth, lastly on self-righteous, uh, we need to understand that self-righteousness, ultimately, it's a rejection of the gospel of grace. You ever have somebody refuse to uh, receive a gift from you? Like you go to buy them lunch or coffee and they're like, no, 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 no. They like literally, ref no, I got my own, right? You know what's weird about that? Like it's such a selfish act for them to do because they are robbing you of the joy because it's more blessed to give than to receive. And yet how often in our self-righteousness we do this towards God? And he's like, man, here's my grace. And you're like, no, 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 I got this, I'll earn it. Yep, forget 2020, 2021, 2022, 2023, I'm gonna be flawless and I'm gonna be righteous and just you watch and see. It's a rejection of the gospel of grace. That's why Spurgeon puts it like this. He says, self-righteousness explains. I will not be saved in God's way. I will make a new road to heaven I will not bow before God's grace. I will not accept the atonement which God has wrought out in the person of Jesus. I will be my own redeemer. I will enter heaven by my own strength and glorify my own merits. This is why Spurgeon says the Lord is very wroth, wrathful against self-righteousness. I do not know of anything against which his fury burneth more than against this, because this touches him in a very tender point. It insults the glory and honor of his son, Jesus Christ. Saying we're better, we're earnest, we're good enough is actually a rejection of the person of Jesus. You know, my, my story is an interesting one because I got pretty radically saved. I was about, about 16. Um, I was trying to um, impress a girl in youth group by reading my Bible, and it worked. <laughs> the reading my Bible part. Um, 
And like I fell in love with the gospel. And I was radically transformed from the inside out. I mean, my teenage years were not spent partying, um, drinking. My, my teenage years were spent um, doing ministry <laughs> in my school, in my church. And it was this like amazing thing. And I remember at 18, somebody sent me down. Uh, he, he, was a, he was a business owner and entrepreneur. He goes, hey, um, I think God's calling you to plant a church one day. And uh, whenever you're ready to do that, I'll fund it. And I was like, well, I'm 18. 19 sounds great. <laughs> uh, but I knew I was young and immature. And so uh, I ended up moving up to Portland and I wanted to get educated and uh, went, to, went, went to Multnomah Bible College and, and loved my time there. But, but something happened in me and I don't know when it happened because my outward behavior was the same. But there was a shift. And it was a shift from living righteously as a response to the gospel of grace um, to living righteously because I was better than everybody else. And it was about that time that that inward shift took place uh, shortly thereafter after um, the outward shift took place. And I just went through a season of just pain, of, of, of sin, of hurting friends, of turning back on the things that I had made commitments to. And it's interesting because I think we have these moments in our life. Like we're going along and, and, and we, 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 meet this, we meet this moment of, of, of crisis, okay? Now, I, I don't know what this moment of crisis looks like for you. Uh, sometimes it is sin and failure like it was in, in, in my case. Um, sometimes it's something that's happened to you. You were betrayed. I've seen people who, um, they were cheated on. Their husband or wife committed adultery and it cr causes this crisis. People who were abused, people who fell short, people who, who, who hit rock bottom. I don't know what it is, but there's this crisis moment. And we can all go all kinds of ways out of these crisis moments. But some of us, uh, we do say, no, out of this crisis moment, I know I still want and need Jesus. But, but here's what's fascinating is we come out of it. And even in that, I still see this two ways that people go. And maybe you've seen this too. Um, one of the ways that people go is the way of the gospel. And they're like, man, life is so broken. I'm so messed up. I'm so overcome and overwhelmed by the goodness and the grace of God. You, you move deeper into the gospel and you live in a way of this justification that we talked about. But there's another path uh, where we think we're still going towards God, but rather than going the way of the gospel, we go towards self-righteousness. And here's what I mean. I'm so ashamed about what I've done, I'm gonna make up for it now. And they turn into the meanest, angriest, bitter, most self-righteous people on the planet. And, and here is what Paul is arguing, ultimately what he's getting at. We need to be a gospel people no matter what. Response to our sin, let's be a gospel people. Rejoicing over what God has done, let's be a gospel people. Whatever it is, whatever you face in life, let's be a gospel people. And I remember, for me, walking that road and coming out of it. And I, you know, I thought, man, after I've walked this road, I'm done with ministry. 
Like I was 21 years old. Like I, I literally was like, my life, my life is over. <laughs> I can never recover, you know, from, from the sins I've committed. And yet, um, I walked that road with, with pastors, with family, with friends. I walked this road of restoration. I remember sitting in a room like this, filled with people who were worshiping. And we were singing this song by um, Cannons, by Phil Wickham. Thank you. Sorry, Phil. <laughs> and there's this line. It just says, I'm so unworthy but still you loved me. Forever my heart will sing of how great you are. And I remember just tears streaming down my face. See, I could have told you all about grace. I could have taught on grace. But it wasn't until that moment, walking through that, that I actually tasted it. And it's radically changed me. See, and Paul is just building to this point, and he says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live but Christ who lives in me in the life I now live in the flesh. I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. I do not nullify the grace of God. For if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. See, this is, this is how we know the outcome of justification. No longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. What is true of him is true of you. And it's, it's worth remembering in this situation. The, Paul, is, he's still talking to Peter here. And he finishes by reminding Peter that the Christian life is about living in line with the gospel through all of life. We don't just start with the gospel and move beyond it. We're no better. He's reminding him, hey, listen, you and me, we need the gospel just as much as these Gentile sinners did. So who are we now to think we're above them? He says, the old self is dead. What Paul is saying is your old identities are gone. Man. Your old striving to be loved, it's dead. Your old reaction out of emotion rather than wisdom, it's buried. The part of you that says, I'm good because I follow the law. I'm bad because I fail. I'm important because I've accomplished things. I'm insignificant because people have hurt me. That is no longer who you are. That is no longer identity. When Christ comes in you, it's like a house. And he starts moving throughout. This is sanctification. He starts moving throughout the house. And he starts at the library of your mind. And he sorts through all the garbage. And he starts cleaning out all the worthless trash that's there. And he says, no more. Is that who you are? And he moves into the kitchen. And he deals with your unhealthy appetites and your sinful desires. And he starts to pull those away and say, no, that's not who you are anymore. You now live. I am in you and you are in me. At the dining table... He serves us the bread of life, reminding that only he can satisfy. He pours out living water so that we will never thirst for the things of the world again. He works his way through the dark hallways and the closets, and he cleans out all the places where sin's, sin hides, because what he's doing is he's working through every nook and cranny of your life until his love and his mercy and his forgiveness and his grace is your new identity. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And so what that means is you're not just declared righteous, but now he's given you the power to live righteously. Now he's given you the power to walk in newness of life. And yeah, you'll have, still have sin and you'll fall short, but the more you lean in, 
the more you dwell in his presence, the more you listen to his voice, the more you will experience his power and grace and love flowing through you. Because this is part of the whole purpose, that you, your story of redemption, you being justified, you being made new, that you are the story being told to our world. You are the light being shown in the darkness. The way you live, your transformation is part of how our city experiences the transforming power of the gospel. And so it's no longer I who live. Stop striving. Stop trying to be better. Stop trying to be more and let Jesus just live in you. A couple weeks ago, I had a really hard moment. I felt like really betrayed and really wounded. And so I go to my wife and I'm like, hey, this is what just happened. I was like, I'm gonna reach out to him. I'm gonna meet with him. She's like, now? I'm like, yeah. She's like, it's nine o'clock at night. I'm like, no, I'm, I'm, I, I need to deal with this. She's like, maybe just like take a minute or like an hour or like a year and just like chill out. <laughs> and uh, so when I'm thinking and praying, I, I, I walk around. I'm a, I'm, I'm a kind of a pacing processor and a pacing uh, prayer. And, and so I'm, I'm talking to God and, and, and I feel God tell me what he wants me to do. He says, I want you to pray for this guy. I'm like, oh, I'll pray for him. Like, some, let's go. And then he very clearly pushes, presses on my heart what he wants me to pray. And I don't want to do it, but I want to be obedient. And so I walk into our bedroom and I sit down on the bed next to my wife and I say, hey, I need you to do something with me. She's like, okay. I was like, I feel that God is calling me to pray forgiveness and blessing over this guy and his family and his kids. And she says, okay, let's pray. And we start praying for this family. Not repentance, forgiveness. Not justice, but blessing. And as I do, and as I am, I just get this picture of Jesus hanging on that cross, saying, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And I think, my old self wants vengeance. My old self wants justice. My old self wants hard conversations. But it's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. Imagine if we were a church, a group of people that really allowed the way of Jesus, the truth of Jesus, the forgiveness, the grace of Jesus to live out through us, how radically lives around us, our own lives would be transformed. That's the difference between justification and self-righteousness. Jesus, we are so grateful for your gospel we're so grateful that it is not our works. There's nothing we can earn, nothing we can strive for, but it is your grace and your goodness and your power working in and through us. Lord, would we continue to be a church that builds on the gospel, builds around the gospel. The, the gospel is the foundation of all that we are. And Lord, would you heal us and free us from the self-righteousness that is in all of our hearts. 
trying to justify our behaviors and our thoughts and our way of living, would you just set us free from that? And that we would just truly find our hope and identity in you, Lord. Pray all this in your name. Amen.